Good morning, everyone. Uh, so our reading today uh, is John chapter 6, verses 1 to 21. Uh, you can find that on page 1,621 of the Bibles on your chairs, uh, or you can also follow along uh, on the screen beside me here. So John chapter 6. Sometime after this, Jesus crossed to the far shore of the Sea of Galilee, that is the Sea of Tiberias, and a great crowd of people followed him because they saw the signs he had performed by healing the sick. Then Jesus went up on a mountainside and sat down with his disciples. The Jewish Passover festival was near. When Jesus looked up and saw a great crowd coming toward him, he said to Philip, where shall we buy bread for these people to eat? He asked this only to test him, for he already had in mind what he was going to do. Philip answered him, it would take more than half a year's wages to buy enough bread for each one to have a bite. Another of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, spoke up. Here is a boy with five small barley loaves and two small fish. But how far will they go among so many? Jesus said, have the people sit down. Uh, there was plenty of grass in, this, in that place and they sat down. About 5,000 men were there. Jesus took the loaves gave thanks and distributed to those who were seated as much as they wanted. He did the same with the fish. When they all had enough to eat, he said to the, his disciples, gather the pieces that are left over, let nothing be wasted. So they gathered them and filled 12 baskets with the pieces of the five barley loaves left over by those who had eaten. After the people saw the sign Jesus performed, they began to say, Surely this is the prophet who has come into the world. Jesus, knowing what, that they intended to come and make him king by force, withdrew again uh, to a mountain by himself. When evening came, his disciples went down to the lake, where they got into a boat and set off across the lake for Capernaum. By now it was dark and Jesus had not yet joined them. A strong wind was blowing and the waters grew rough. When they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus approaching the boat, walking on the water, and they were frightened. But he said to them, it is I, don't be afraid. Then they were willing to take, take him into the boat, and immediately the boat reached the shore where they were heading. Well, hello again, and thanks, Lockie. Uh, when I was a college, uh, Bible college student, I had a summer job which involved a fair bit of driving around, uh, and one day I was asked to take along with, with me on one of my trips one of the executives for the organisation I was working for. So I had about an hour or so with this guy in, in the vehicle, and um, as we started chatting, I you know, told him I was studying at Bible college, um, and he wasn't rude exactly, but almost you know, straight away he explained all, all that stuff just isn't for him. Uh, he told me uh, that he'd once been in the Navy, and the things he'd seen just too much. He, he said, um, anyone who's seen what I've seen couldn't believe in a God who cares. Anyone who's seen what I've seen couldn't believe in a God who cares. And so the conversation hit a bit of a wall uh, in that direction, and uh, we got on fine, and it was, it was an okay trip. Uh, but I often think back to that conversation, so, as, you know, as we often do, and like, what could have I said? Uh, the way he sort of phrased things has really st stuck with me. Now, I guess I could have uh, pointed out that he was being a bit too selective about what he noticed in our world. Um, after all, the reason we were in a vehicle making a trip together is because we were both working for Anglicare, um, and we were picking up and dropping off huge amounts of food and toys for families in need at Christmas. So his job was working for an organisation that was all about showing God's care to people, uh, all in God's name. 
See, he could see the good things in the world and he could come to a different conclusion. There is a God who cares. But it's a very real question, isn't it? That real cry of the heart. Uh, be it the headlines we see about you know, war upon war or be it our experiences just going through those, those really tough times, which uh, many are. So many people look at the world and uh, think about our own experiences. We, uh, we think, well, where is God? Does, does he care? In fact, I reckon if all you had to go off, uh, if all you had to go off on that question was our experience and you know, the headlines, I reckon it's pretty hard to come to the conclusion that there is a God who is powerful and who cares and who loves this world. But thankfully, uh, if we are wondering that, where is God? Does he care? There is a better place to look than the headlines. Uh, there is a better place to draw conclusions from than our own observations about the world. Uh, the Bible is God's main way of giving us a really clear understanding of what he is like. So we don't have to guess. We don't have to go off our own observations. God has told us who he is and what he's like. And the Bible gives a really clear picture of what he's up to in the world, what his priorities are. And so we can have a really firm foundation, a great uh, understanding of what's happening when we hit the storms of life. And that's why uh, we're committed as a church, week by week, by looking at the Bible carefully. It helps us know God. It helps us make sense of what he's up to, what his plans are. It helps us make sense of the world and, and ourselves. So in our passage today, in John chapter 6, uh, we get some really clear pointers on that question. Uh, this passage will help us with the cry of that heart, does God care? Back in chapter 1 of John, uh, John told us something just mind-blowing about Jesus. Uh, you start off by saying that God has taken on flesh. That's the ultimate way of showing us, revealing us what he's like and that he cares, is coming to be with us, coming to be one of us. And then John's description of Jesus' life, what Jesus said, what he did, his, his teaching, his miracles, it helps us know more fully what God is, uh, who God is and what he's like. Uh, just a few weeks ago, uh, we saw Jesus saying, whatever God the Father does, so I do as the Son. That is, if we want to know what God is like, we look to Jesus. He is the clearest revelation of who God is like, who, who God is. Now, John's described some of Jesus' miracles, and you know, turning water into wine. Uh, he's healed some very, very sick people. Uh, and today we just heard some uh, of Jesus' two most famous uh, miracles, I guess, of feeding that giant crowd and then walking on water. The interesting thing about those miracles in John is he doesn't call them miracles. He calls them signs. He doesn't call them miracles. He calls them signs. You would notice that. I think it's verse 2. Now, why would you call a miracle a sign? Why does John do that? Well, think about, say, a traffic sign. Uh, a sign by itself, out of context, isn't that important, is it? There's nothing amazing or powerful about a stop sign if it's just stored in an old shed somewhere. Uh, a sign is important for what it means, what it points to. So at an intersection, uh, a stop sign means don't keep driving. And it's a powerful sign. It can stop trucks. It's a pretty powerful sign uh, because of what it means. But if you stole that stop sign and put it in your living room, it doesn't mean anything, does it? It just means you've done something very dodgy. Take another example. If you were just to pick a random emoji from your phone and send it to a random person or a friend or whatever, without any context, without any explanation, just one emoji and send it to them, it doesn't mean anything, does it? Just a, you know, a yellow head vomiting or something like that. But if you're having a conversation, if you ask what was dinner like and you reply with a vomiting emoji, well, it means something. The symbol, the sign, it means something. It points beyond itself to what's really important. So John describes uh, what these signs are as he goes. And he does that so we can focus not so much on the sign, but to see where it points to, what it means to help us understand who God is and what he's on about. 
Now, I should say up front, the problem with the passage we're looking at today uh, is that we are just looking at the signs. We are focusing on the signs. And the next few weeks, Jesus explains uh, what they all mean. Uh, so today what we're going to do is we're going to consider the general direction that the signs point in, and then the coming weeks we're going to look at the specifics. What does Jesus have us understand about why he feeds these people and why he walks on water? Now many of you will be fi- uh, very familiar with this, this uh, miracle. Would have, uh, well, our kids would have already covered this in Sunday school at some point in the last year or so. Feeding the 5,000 is probably the most memorable of Jesus' stories for many. Uh, it's actually the only one in the Bible uh, that's recounted in uh, all four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke and John, uh, other than the resurrection. It's the only miracle recorded in all four. And the details we're familiar with, they're pretty straightforward. Uh, and of course, amazing. Uh, amazing at the moment, isn't it? But it's also a really weird miracle on the surface, isn't it? When you think about it, like, why does Jesus do this? Like, it's very easy to understand why Jesus would heal blind people or, or why he would you know, heal sick people. It, it changes their lives. It's good for them. But feeding people, like, they would have been fine without dinner, wouldn't they? It's like just one meal, not a big deal. And at first glance, this does look like a kind of a very cool but entirely unnecessary miracle. Like, what's the point? Let's have a look through the details just quickly. Uh, verse 1, Jesus crosses to the far side of the Sea of Galilee. Um, there's a map here to sort of give you some idea what's going on. Uh, it's an inland sea. It's like a giant lake, really. It gives you a rough idea what that means. Going uh, to the far side means going away from the populated side to the wilderness, actually, on the other side. Uh, just south of Bethsaida is kind of where uh, we think this happens. And verse 2, a great crowd are following him because they saw Jesus healing the sick. Uh, they've seen what he can do and they, they follow him uh, over there. Verse 5, Jesus looks up, he sees this gigantic crowd coming his way, and he throws that curveball to his disciples, doesn't he? It's quite a, quite a question. Verse 5, where are we going to buy enough for everyone? Uh, not surprisingly, the disciples basically say, well, Jesus, that's ridiculous. Uh, all we have here is this small boy's lunchbox. It's not going to go very far. Um, and in that lunchbox is pretty typical food for that time in that place, um, typical food for people who are not well off, barley bread, uh, and some sort of probably pickled or salted fish. Uh, kind of like sardines or something like that. Then verse 10, uh, Jesus gets them to sit down, doesn't he? They're uh, told there's plenty of grass, perhaps uh, like this uh, place on the screens, I think it's taken from nearby uh, the Sea of Galilee, so maybe somewhere like that. Uh, everyone's sitting down, uh, 5,000 men. Now elsewhere, we're told there are women and children as well, uh, so it's probably a crowd that's close to 15, maybe even 20,000 people. That's a huge crowd, isn't it? Uh, it's not uncommon back then to just count... Um, uh, especially in a patriarchal culture, it's just not uncommon to count just the men. Uh, but there is another reason, I think, John tells us about why, why he focuses on just the men. I'll get to that a bit later, just to keep you on the edge of your seats. Why 5,000 men? Why does he tell us that? Well, I'll get to that. Uh, verse 11, uh, Jesus took the bread, gave thanks, he started handing it out. He does the same thing with the two small fish, and everyone had something to eat, didn't they? Well, actually, it's more than that. Not that everyone had something. Everyone had as much as they wanted, verse 11. Verse 12, when everyone's stuffed full, they pick up 12 baskets of leftover bread. Now, don't think picnic baskets here. This is in a time before backpacks, before cars. Uh, if you're going to travel somewhere, you'd have a big wicker basket you might carry around, all your stuff uh, on it. Um, so this is not a picnic basket. It's a large wicker basket, probably. And the point is, it's, there's a lot left over, 12 big baskets. Now, perhaps, uh, like me, you've heard people try and explain away the miracle here. There's lots of people who've uh, come up with a very similar kind of explanation for this. It's not that miraculous, they'll, they'll say. Um, they just, if the people who find it hard to believe Jesus can do the miraculous, they might say something like, well, when the generosity of this boy was noticed, when they realized this one boy had given his lunchbox up and to share, um, that same spirit of generosity overtook the crowd and everyone pulled out the lunch they'd secretly tucked away and sort of shared it with others. He, they were inspired uh, by the small boy's gesture. 
And so it's a wonderful thing, and, and it's a great miracle of, uh, of generosity or something like that. Complete nonsense. <laughs> it's clearly not what John thinks happens, is it? Uh, John was there, by the way. John is one of Jesus' eyewitness disciples. He, he would have noticed, I think, uh, if that had happened, if people started pulling out uh, a very normal kind of picnic in a very normal kind of way. John saw a miracle. Uh, he saw one lunchbox feed a huge crowd. And perhaps more importantly, uh, if you're still a bit sceptical, have a look at verse 14. Uh, John is not alone. Everyone there realizes this is a supernatural moment by their response. Now, there's the familiar story. Uh, many of you will have known that your whole life. But what do we make of this? Uh, after all, this is a sign. What does it point to? What's the meaning of it? Is it simply that Jesus is powerful? He can do what he wants? Uh, does it tell us that Jesus came to feed the poor? I mean, some will point out, actually, um, we might think it's an unnecessary kind of miracle, but we're not subsistence, uh, we're not living in subsistence kind of society where if you don't work one day, you don't eat the next. And these people are taking a whole day off to come and hear Jesus. The whole family is going to go out with food the next day, you presume. So maybe I'm making too light of this, this one meal. Uh, Jesus is clearly looking after their stomachs, that's true. But is there more going on than Jesus just looking after hungry people? Uh, yes. Now, I want to take us back to a small detail that's very easy to skip over, seemingly insignificant when we first read through. Verse 4. If you have it in front of you, verse 4. The Jewish Passover festival was near. Now, let me ask, why would John mention that? If you were to take that verse out, would it change anything in the story? Does it make the story any different? Like, not really, actually. It's a detail he puts in there. You think, what's the detail, what's the detail doing there? And as a good sort of habit, when we come across something like that in the Bible, very important to stop, to think. Uh, John doesn't waste words. He tells us things with purpose. And so what does that detail, verse 4, what does it add to our understanding of what's going on here? Passover. Um, especially for those who are new to the Bible and or, or those who are just a bit rusty on these things, let me just uh, spend a minute or two on what the Passover is. It will help uh, understand what's going on. Uh, the Passover for Jewish people uh, was the biggest event of the year, kind of like our Christmas. Everyone sort of celebrates Passover as a big, big thing um, because it's a celebration of the time that God rescued his people from slavery in Egypt uh, under the leadership of the great prophet Moses, the greatest of prophets, uh, Moses. Uh, God saved Israel from a life of slavery and oppression in Egypt. Uh, he set them free. Uh, and it's called Passover because God passed over. He spared the house of Israel, he passed over them, uh, he passed over uh, them in their judgment, uh, in the judgment he brought on Egypt. Uh, he passed over the house that killed a lamb and, and spread its blood on their doors. Uh, so Passover is the origin story of the nation of Israel. They leave Egypt, uh, they're following Moses uh, out through the Red Sea, uh, they cross the Red Sea, uh, and they spend a lot of time in the wilderness, in deserted places. There's a giant group of people, a whole nation, who are hungry who had left all their stuff behind in the wilderness. And what happens? God provided, didn't he? God sent them, miraculously, bread from heaven, manna. So John mentions Passover in verse 4, because this helps us see what this sign means. Let's dig a bit, dig a bit further here. If you have your Bibles open, it's always good to do that. Um, uh, if you have your Bibles open, at the end of chapter 5, uh, just have a look at verse 39. So chapter 5, is going back to the last couple of verses. Uh, chapter 5, verse 39. Uh, in context, Jesus is having a real go at the Jewish leaders here. And he said, in verse 39, your scriptures, like our Old Testament, these are the very scriptures that testify about me. That is, the Old Testament stories had patterns, they had signs, they had symbols uh, that all point to Jesus and testify who he is. Uh, skip down to verse 46 of chapter 5. Jesus keeps going. He says, if you believed in Moses, 
you'd believe me, for he, Moses, he wrote about me. So here in chapter 6, remember, Jesus has just been saying the Old Testament gives the shape of what God's plans for the world are. Moses writes about God's saving work. Moses wrote about the Passover. But it's just a shadow. It's a sign that points us to Jesus. And so here we are, seeing Jesus feeding 5,000 people, or much more, uh, with Moses, with a Passover in mind. And we can follow where that sign's pointing, can't we? We have a great crowd in a deserted place, the far side of the lake, in the wilderness. They're hungry. Uh, We're told, actually, aren't we, in verse 5, that Jesus tests his disciples. And that brings to mind, actually, the way that God tested Israel in the wilderness, exactly the same kind of language. And then, uh, just like in the Exodus, food is miraculously provided for the people. In detail of the baskets, uh, 12 baskets left over. It's a very specific thing John tells us. 12 baskets, not lots of baskets. Uh, it's most likely, I think, John tells us there's 12 baskets. It makes us think, well, all 12 tribes of Israel would have been well catered for. Now, the people there, uh, the people that were fed uh, by Jesus, they understood these parables straight away. They knew the Passover. They knew their, their Bibles. Uh, so when Jesus feeds them in the wilderness like this, verse 14, they say, surely this man is the capital P prophet. Notice that in your Bibles? Not a prophet, the, capital P, prophet. Now, who do, they, who, do they, who do they have in mind at that point? Well, as Moses got to the end of his life, uh, this great prophet Moses, who had led God's people through unbelievable kind of moments, uh, he taught God's people, he cared for them for, for decades. Uh, Moses famously said near the end of his life, God's going to raise up for you a prophet like me. A prophet like me will be raised up for Israel. God will send another a game changer, another rescuer, just like Moses. So, verse 4, that hint about Passover, shows us this is not some sort of unnecessary party trick Jesus is throwing. It's a sign that the new Moses, a new rescuer, a new moment in world history has arrived. After all, Passover, as much as it was a time for Jewish people to look back at God's saving work, was equally a time to look forward to a great salvation, And Jesus is saying, as he feeds these people, that time has now come. The people are right in verse 14. Uh, He is the prophet, one like Moses, one greater than Moses. That's the direction the sign points us in. But actually, as we see, we're coming to this next week, uh, they miss the bigger point. Jesus is not just like Moses. Uh, Moses could get them bread from heaven, he could feed them. Uh, But Jesus will say that he is the bread of life. We'll find out what that means next week. But basically, he's not come to save Israel from the Roman rule, uh, like Moses saved them from Egypt. He's come to save them, and actually the whole world, from sin. Save the world from death and evil. Uh, Back in John 1, we were sort of set up to see this. John 1 uh, tells us that Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And later uh, in John, as Jesus dies on the cross, John makes the point that Jesus' death happens over Passover. Jesus is the Passover Lamb. His blood spares us from God's judgment. Have a look at verse 15 again here in chapter 6. It helps us see that the crowd really didn't quite get this yet, did they? They're on the right track, but also totally wrong. Verse 15, Jesus realised that they intended to make him king by force. Now, that would be a big statement, wouldn't it? 5,000 men marching Jesus to Jerusalem as their king. Now, I reckon that's why we've been told there's 5,000 men. That's how you count military might. How many men? How many fighting men? 5,000. I think that's the kind of idea John's getting us uh, to, um, to appreciate here. This would be a big moment if the Jewish uh, men at this point grabbed Jesus, took him to Jerusalem. It's not a huge army, but it's not a bad start. 
The thing is, Jesus hasn't come to grab power, uh, to, to run an army. He's come to die as Passover lamb. So that God's judgment will pass over me and pass over you. We'll see next week as Jesus talks more to the crowd. Um, they want more food, actually. They, come, they follow him up the next day. They want more food. Um, Jesus says, actually, this isn't really about me feeding you actual food. He filled their stomachs, not, not because he cared about that most. He's not that concerned about their hunger at that point. He fed them because he wanted, to know, he wanted them to know who he is and come to him for life. Now, hear me say, Jesus does very much care for our day-to-day. Jesus cares when we're hungry. Uh, he does care for those details. But I think this points, us, uh, points out for us that if we miss the biggest picture of all, that Jesus offers salvation to eternity. That's the big picture. That's what Jesus is really on about, eternity. If we miss that, we can miss that sort of compared to eternity, our day-to-day problems, the things we're frustrated Jesus isn't fixing for us, compared to eternity, they're not quite as important as we often feel, are they? Jesus is kind. He does feed these people, but he cares most of all about their eternity and spending it with him. Now, the main focus in this passage is on Jesus, of course, um, but I think it's just worth pausing for a moment as his disciples and reflect on what do we learn about being disciples here. Um, I often feel really sorry for Jesus' disciples as we read the Gospels. Uh, They're always 10 steps behind Jesus, no idea what's going on most of the time. And poor Philip, first five, um, just being put on the spot by Jesus, where are we going to feed 5,000 people? Uh, Where are we going to buy food? And Philip's like, Jesus, we, we can't do that. We can only imagine what Jesus' face looked like at that point, whether he's kind of hiding a smile, uh, because he knows what he's going to do, or he's kind of pretending when, uh, pretending to be shocked how expensive to feed these people. Oh, no, oh, yeah, you're right, that's a lot of people, isn't it? But maybe Jesus is actually disappointed at this point. Uh, Philip has been with him long enough to know who he is. Philip's been with him now for a while. Why didn't Jesus say, why why didn't Philip say to Jesus, look, look, Jesus, I don't know, but why don't you do it? I know you could feed them if you want to. Why didn't Jesus say that? Why didn't, sorry, why didn't Philip say that? It seems to me, as Jesus tests him, Philip doesn't pass with flying colours, does he? It feels fair enough. But I don't know about you, I I feel a lot like Philip most of the time. Uh, I can fixate on the problem, I can fixate on the lack of resources, the the problems, and then I can try and work out the best solution I can come up with, uh, with the resources I have at hand. But if we go about kingdom work that way, it's going to be very limiting, isn't it? For instance, if I look at our church and and our budget, uh, I can sometimes come away thinking, well, there's hundreds of thousands of people around Tonsley. This budget, these resources, uh, we just, just can't do much, can we? There's not much we can do here. It won't go far. Well, the video uh, we just watched with Mark Peterson in it, as I, as I watched that for the first time, hearing how there's not that many people at the moment who are putting their hand up, uh, willing to do what it takes to go wherever where they need to go so that millions might hear about Jesus. And as I hear, actually, even the ones who are on the field, uh, like the Purdies, a lot of them don't have the financial support they should to be there. I think, well, this is all a bit hard. It's not really doing much, is it? And perhaps sometimes uh, you're a bit like me as well. Like, we we do want to live our life for God's glory, don't we? We do want to do our best to see the kingdom grow and be involved in that as much as we can. But then we think, well, what am I going to do with my limitations? How is that going to be useful with, you know, my sinfulness? How can I do anything worthwhile in the kingdom? It's not going to account for much, is it? Here I think we see uh, what Philip should have seen straight away. That we're disciples of the Son of God. Uh, resources don't really matter much to him, do they? Not a big problem. And if we're focusing too much on, our, on the limitations, if we're focusing on what we can't do or what we can't achieve, rather than on the God we serve, uh, like Philip, I think we miss the point. And we might miss out seeing him 
do far more than we could imagine. Jesus testing Philip here, I think, reminds us to pray, doesn't it? It reminds us to pray, just like Mark asked us to in the CMS video. Are we praying? Uh, Are we asking God to provide uh, above and beyond what's at hand? Are we praying that our church, our own lives, are we praying that our world might increasingly be changed by the gospel? Or are we focusing on the problems too much? Are we praying? Well, uh, as Moses would often do, uh, Jesus in verse 15 heads up a mountain uh, and we can pretty safely assume he's spending quality time with his heavenly father up the mountain. Uh, His disciples head off in their boat uh, to go back across the lake. Um, We're not told here in John, actually, uh, why they get in the boat and go. We're not told the reason for that. Uh, But elsewhere, uh, I think it's in Mark and Matthew, and I think it's Luke as well, uh, they get in the boat because Jesus tells them to. He commands them, get in the boat, go across the lake. Do you notice he sends them off across the lake at night? They're having a tough time, aren't they, if you sort of read that story again. It's really windy. Uh, There are big waves, and as Mark records this, he says the wind was against them. It's hard work rowing in the middle of a lake, wind against you, big waves at night. Uh, It's not a fun night out, is it? It's not a nice paddle in the the shallows. Uh, This is a rough night for the disciples. I'm pretty sure if I was on the boat, I'd be wondering, why did Jesus make us do this? We could have waited till tomorrow, we could have walked, we could have waited for better weather. This is ridiculous, and Jesus is not here to help. Where's he gone? He's left us here by ourselves. Does he even care? We're told after they row five or six kilometres, uh, that's a very long way if you've done any rowing, uh, five or six kilometres, which puts them kind of in the middle of the lake, uh, a long way from shore. The strangest thing happened, doesn't it? This is bizarre. Jesus comes to them walking on water. Verse 19, and this is the least surprising thing about the story, they were very scared, uh, because you would be, wouldn't you, seeing your friend, like a ghost, just ignoring physics in the middle of the lake in the middle of the night. That'd be terrifying. And Jesus says, it is I, don't be afraid. You know, as if telling them not to be afraid would actually help them not be afraid. But anyway, they take him on board. And immediately they reach where they were heading. Now, I reckon that last comment about immediately getting there, it's also some sort of miracle. I don't really understand how this all works. It's, but it's clear they're not near land at this point, but suddenly uh, they, they arrive. Jesus helps them get there miraculously as well. Just like feeding the 5,000, uh, at face value, it's pretty cool, but also pretty odd, isn't it, at face value? It does seem a bit unnecessary, like Jesus is kind of just showing off at this point. He doesn't need to walk on water, does he? I mean, what does it add to our understanding of Jesus that he does this? At least feeding 5,000 people is kind of helpful and lots of people saw it, but this is, this is odd. Well, there's a very memorable part of Job in the Old Testament. Uh, it's Job chapter 9, if you're taking notes, and I'd like to look it up later. Job 9 uh, describes very memorably that only God can tread on the waves of the sea. Only God can do that. And here's Jesus treading on the waves of the sea. Now, this is Jesus telling us something about his divine nature. And so with Moses and the Passover in the front of our mind, and we might be thinking as well about uh, the water of the Red Sea and later the water of the Jordan River, just not being any problem for God. He can do whatever he wants with water. Physics don't matter if God has a plan. But even more than that is what Jesus says here. He says to them, it is I. Now, it's hard to see this in the English. Uh, In the Greek, the way Jesus says that, it could just mean, yeah, it's me, that's Jesus. But the way he says in the Greek could also uh, be just how God described himself to Moses in the burning bush. Do you remember, if you know the story, how God says to Moses, I am who I am, I am who I am. That is, he is the very essence of existence. In him is life. He simply is. Everything else is created, but God is. He is who he is. 
As Jesus says this here, it is I, he's actually using that same phrase, it is I, I am. And something he'll keep saying, actually, for the rest of John, we'll see he makes some pretty big claims about who he is. I am the bread of life and, and so on. He's going to show us he's not just a prophet. He's also showing us he is the Son of God. He is God the Son. So as we're thinking about who our rescuer will be, in what way is he like Moses, in what way is different, here we're seeing he's none other than the great I am. He's God himself. So don't be afraid. So don't be afraid. We have a far greater rescue at hand than what happened under Moses. Now again, this passage is all about Jesus, but again, it's good to put ourselves in the shoes of the disciples, or perhaps in this case, they're very wet sandals, and just kind of imagine what it's like, and what do we learn about discipleship here. Um, there may be, well be times uh, where we feel like Jesus has set us off in a boat at night against the winds, uh, the waves are bad, we're not making progress, and we're wondering, where is Jesus in this? This sucks. I know some of you are going through uh, really hard times at the moment, or you're close to someone who is. And those moments where we're wondering, well, is God here? Does he care? I reckon this moment for the disciples teaches us, even if we don't understand why, Jesus does know exactly what's going on. He finds them in the middle of the lake, doesn't he? He knows where they are. What's more, he cares. Uh, I don't think Jesus had to walk on water to show us he's divine. He does that in all sorts of other ways. But here he shows his disciples that he is divine, and also in his divinity, he comes to be with them. He is with them. And it's the same for us, that in his divinity, Christ is with us. He is right with us. He doesn't abandon his people, uh, no matter what it feels like, no matter what it may seem like. God himself has come near, and Jesus promises he will never leave us, he will never forsake us. So don't be afraid. Now, I started today by suggesting that if all we have to go on is uh, what we experience and what we see in the world, if we, that's all we have to go on, we'd probably conclude God's not there or God doesn't care. But this part of the Bible tells us that God has come to be with us and he's come to rescue us. These two signs we've seen, feeding people and walking on water, we realise God's plans are far bigger than our day-to-day problems, aren't they? Far bigger than where our next meal may come from or uh, even those rough times at life as his disciples. We're reminded that his plans haven't gone wrong. He's right with us. Uh, Both these signs we've looked at confirm very strongly God hasn't left us alone in this messed up world. He's come to save us. He's come to rescue us from a far bigger problem than we realise we have. He's come to save us from the penalty we owe because of our sin. Both of these signs point us to the ultimate confirmation that God cares. That God the Son, the Passover lamb, gave himself to be broken. So we don't have to. And he faced the biggest fear in the universe, the wrath of God. And he did that so we don't have to. So we might have life. This shows us undoubtedly he cares. And so whether it's what we face now or whether it's something we will hit later in life, as we follow Jesus, take great comfort knowing that he cares for you and that he he has died for you. And whatever else we face, whatever doubts may be raised, hold firmly onto that and hold firmly onto his promise. He'll never leave us, never forsake us. So don't be afraid. Would you join me as I pray? Lord Jesus, we thank you so much that uh, you came from heaven to earth, that you took on flesh to show us the full extent of your love and your care for us. Uh, No matter what we face, no matter uh, what it may seem like, please help us hold firmly to what you promise us. 
please help us hold firmly onto uh, your promise that you care for us and that you have provided a great salvation. Thank you for your promise to always be with us and never forsake us. And so please do comfort us, especially those who are struggling now. Help us to know that you are really with us and that you care for us. Please continue to show us the many ways in which you are worthy of our lives and to give our best of ourselves to your glory. Heart, mind and strength, we pray this in your name. Amen.